Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Father, I thank you for this day, and uh, I just pray now you'd help us to focus on your word, God, that you would draw our attention unto you, and uh, God, just that we would be amazed and overwhelmed, Lord, at your majesty, your awe, um, your power, uh, your knowledge, Lord, and uh, just that we would be uh, fall all the more in love with you. God, teach us your ways as we go through this chapter now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We started um, really last week looking at um, this magnificent prophecy, incredibly detailed prophecy that Isaiah is writing out, um, receiving from the Lord uh, about this man named Cyrus. And Cyrus uh, is not somebody that's part of the Hebrew nation. Uh, He's not somebody that is uh, a God-fearing man. He's not somebody that is... um, well, at the point that we're reading, he's not even born. In fact, his parents aren't even born. In fact, it's probably his grandparents aren't even born at the point that Isaiah is writing this. And God names him by name as the instrument that God is going to use to deliver the Hebrews, the Israelites, from the Babylonian captivity. So just, a, just an amazing thought. It would be like you, me asking you, who's going to be the president in 2166? That's, that's kind of what it would be like. We don't even know if we'll be a country in 2166, let alone who will be the president in 2166, 150 years from now. You know, it's, it's an impossibility for us to know outside of the majesty, the awe, and the power, and the knowledge of God. And yet, he names him by name. And so we're going to continue in this thought as we pick it up in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. We ready? One of us is. Okay. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, and there it is, the name specific, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not shut. Now, if you're not yet familiar with this story, this is going to blow you away. This is going to amaze you to remember, and, and, and you have to keep in the forefront of your mind, this is 150 to 200 years before the events happen. The detail of verse 1 is amazing. Verse 2. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So, What's fascinating about this is, first of all, he, he says who the deliverer is going to be, names him by name. You know, how, how, do, how, does, how do you pick a name for somebody? Well, God influenced 
Cyrus's mom and dad to name him Cyrus. They had no idea about this prophecy. They had no idea that their baby boy was going to grow up one day and rule the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and yet they, they fulfill the prophecy without even knowing. And then to, to consider the detail given here in these first three verses, all 200 years roughly before Cyrus was even born is amazing. Where we're at as we're reading this, God has just or is in the process of delivering the nation of Israel from the Assyrians. Okay, we talked about that through the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, that the Assyrians were going to come up to Jerusalem. They were going to come up to the neck of, the, of Israel, and they weren't going to be swallowed, that, they were, that God was going to deliver them from the Assyrians. Okay, that's the, the, roughly the history that we're in. So Babylon, the, the, the people that are going to take Israel captive, they're not a world power yet. They're, they're just kind of a bunch of tribes out in the middle of nowhere. They haven't developed, they haven't grown, they haven't become a strength at this point. The Assyrians are the ones in charge. So God is predicting that the Babylonians are going to rise, and then they're going to fall to a man named Cyrus who leads a group of people known as the Mesopotamians, the Medo, I'm sorry, the Medo-Persians rather. He, he, he's, he's, he's predicting two empires away yet. You know, as, as small as Babylon is at the point of Isaiah writing, the Medo-Persian Empire isn't even a blip on the screen at this point. So it's just an amazing thing. But that's exactly what happens. As history unfolds, we can look back at it now. We're talking 2,700 years ago, roughly, that all of this took place. We can look back and see with incredible accuracy the way the Lord was, was speaking. Um, Cyrus grew up and had a glorious military career, right? It says there in verse 1, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him. Well, that's exactly what Cyrus did. Uh, In accordance with uh, Herodotus, who was one of the historians, well-known historians, Cyrus subdued the Syrians, the Assyrians, the the Arabians, the Cappadocians, the Phrygians, the Lydians, the Carians, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians, the Bactrians, the Indians, the Cilicians, the Saians, the, I can't even say that one, Paphlogonians, the Marianides, and many other nations. He also had dominion over the Asiatics, the Greeks, the Cyprians, the Egyptians. He vanquished whatever country he invaded. That's the kind of career that Cyrus ended up having because God said that he would. And what's amazing is he conquered Babylon in order to release the the Israelites. He conquered Babylon in the exact prescribed way of verse 2. It says, I will go before you, or or finishing verse 1, to open doors him the door double doors so the gates will not be shut i will go before him before you and make the crooked places straight i will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron so we can read some of the history actually in the book of daniel as you read belshazzar takes takes the throne of his grandfather in daniel chapter 5 and he takes the throne because the 
His, his uh, father had kind of seen the writing on the wall. He ends up abandoning the throne and leaving Babylon. So Belshazzar becomes the king while under siege from the, the Medo-Persians. Cyrus is outside the city, if you would, while Belshazzar becomes the king. Belshazzar is not worried about what's happening outside. Why? Well, because of Babylon, the city. It was insane how well protected it was. It was, for lack of a better term, it was impenetrable. I mean, they had an inner wall uh, that surrounded the city that was 21 feet thick. Imagine trying to get through a wall that goes from the stage to the back of the room. Imagine working your way trying to breach through a wall that thick. It would take years to get through that wall. On top of that inner wall, or I mean not on top of it literally, but along with that, Outside of the inner wall, there was a moat that was, no, no. First, first it was, okay, the inner wall, 21 feet thick. Then there was a 23-foot military road um, that, that the military would continually surround on. And, and on the 21-foot thick wall, they had um, uh, pillars where our military stands where, where they would house military people to keep guard and keep watch, okay? Then the military road, 23 feet wide. Then there was another wall, 12 feet thick, uh, an outer wall, if you would. Um, and then outside the outer wall was a moat, 200 feet thick, all the way around the city. And then um, Nebuchadnezzar didn't fully feel like that was fully safe enough. So then he built an out-outer wall, an out-outer wall, if you would, that was 80 feet thick. A wall, 80 feet thick. That's the wall that when you hear about chariots racing on the top in Babylon, that's the wall they raced around. 80 feet, a wall, 80 feet thick. And then outside of that, there was another 200 foot moat. So if you wanted to breach the city, <laughs> you had to go through a 200 foot moat that was fed by the Euphrates River. Who knows what was in that? Then you had to break through the, the 80 foot wall once you got through that, there was a 300-foot moat. You had to swim across that, then break through a 12-foot wall, cross the 23-foot military road, break through a 20-foot wall, and then you were inside the city. <laughs> so that's why Belshazzar felt perfectly fine to throw a party the night the city fell, because he wasn't worried about it. And, and, and he knew that the city was, in essence, impenetrable. But what did Cyrus do? He, defray, he, he um, changed the course of the Euphrates River. He, um, what's the word, deferred, deferred it? Diverted, thank you. But he diverted it, so that in essence drained the moats. Um, so he was able to go under the walls. Uh, and then um, the, you still had to get into the inner wall, which was locked by bronze gates. Well, it just so happened, the night that Cyrus decides to do all of this, the, because the city is throwing a party, the guards that were supposed to guard the bronze gate end up getting drunk and forget to lock the bronze gate. So Cyrus walks right into the city. Now read verse 2 and 3 again. Um, 
uh, halfway through verse 1, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. It says in verse 3, I'll give you the treasures of darkness. Cyrus got that. I mean, um, I, think, I think somewhere it's, oh yeah, to loose the armor of kings. It talks about how when all of that happened, Belshazzar wet himself. <laughs> he, loosed the, the, he loosed the armor of kings, if you would. Okay? Um, make sure I got all this right. Uh, yeah, the armies of the Medes and Persians under Cyrus conquered the city of Babylon in a remarkable raid described in Daniel chapter 5. According to Herodotus, while King Belshazzar of Babylon held a reckless party, Cyrus conquered the city by diverting the flow of the Euphrates into nearby swamps, thus lowering the level of the river so his troops could march through the water and under the river gates. Uh, but they still not, would have not been able to enter had the, not the bronze gates of the inner walls been left inexplicably unlocked. Uh, and he, this is David Guzik writing. He, he says, God opened the gates of the city of Babylon for Cyrus. And he put it in writing 200 years before it happened. I don't know, man. That's just amazing. And, and I know it's like you, you guys are all the Wednesday hip church crowd that, that we, we all get God and we know what's going on with all of that and we get it, but um, I can't look past that. I mean, that's, that's, let's not look past the knowledge of God and how accurately he, he, he portrays it here in Isaiah 200 years. In fact, it's so well portrayed here in Isaiah for about 100 to 150 years ago, people were saying there is no way that Isaiah could have prophesied this exactly. That the book of Isaiah must have been written by two different guys. That chapters 1 through 39 probably was written by Isaiah, but then in chapter 40, some anonymous writer is writing after the events and filling it in. And it's just, there's people that would say that, and I would say, no, that's just how powerful our God is. That's how, how much we know, or how much he knows. He got rich doing it. Um, here's a quote. When Cyrus conquered Asia, when he conquered Babylon, he found 34,000 pounds weight of gold. How much does gold go for an ounce right now? Seven, we in $700, somewhere around there? 700 bucks an ounce? I, I haven't looked in a long time. He found 34,000 pounds of gold, along with golden vessels and articles in gold. <laughs> That's just like bar weight that he found. All accomplished by the hand of the Lord, all prophesied 200 years prior here in Isaiah. Just amazing to me. Just glorious, majestic, and a, and a reason to cause us to worship him all the more. So verse 4, he's now going to tell us why he's using Cyrus, why God uses Cyrus, and says in verse 4, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. You're going to hear that several times throughout this chapter, and that's the emphasis that God is trying to make throughout these chapters. 
I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God beside me. He says, he's speaking to Cyrus, I will gird you, though you have not known me, that you may know from the rising of the sun to the setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The accuracy of this prophecy, the prophecy of Cyrus, would be an encouragement to those who come out of the Babylonian captivity. It would encourage them to not turn around and become a pillar of salt, to look back at the city of Babylon and look back to idolatry, to see the accuracy of how Cyrus delivered the nation of Israel from the hands of the Babylonians. All the while they're in the captivity, the Hebrews would have been saying, there's no way that this empire is ever going to fall. Babylon's too strong. But yet, as they're rescued by the, the, the implemented hand, uh, Cyrus, it would encourage them not to, to, to look back again at idolatry. Other gods just can't do what God has done. Only the Lord has done that. It's also good to note the power that God has. Consider this. It said in a couple times in those verses that we read, even though you didn't know me. God, our God, the God that we worship, is able to use those not even subject to him. God, God doesn't just have at his deployment or at his use those that are, are, are willing. God is able to use anybody. That's power. When you can use more than just what's in your kingdom, when your resources are unlimited, it doesn't matter if the person is following you or not, you're able to bend their will. That's power. It's one thing to be powerful enough to move and to lead a people that are willing to follow you. But it says there several times, even though you didn't know me, I'm able to bend my will or bend you to my will. That's true power. And the purpose in God using Cyrus was to deliver a message to the world. That's what it says there in verse 6, that they may know me from the rising of the sun to the setting of it. That's, that's a picture of the whole world. From where the sun comes up to where the sun goes down is a picture of the whole world. He wants to deliver a message. And what is the message? That there's none beside me. That, that, that He is the Lord, that there is no other, that God's favor was on the land and on the people of Israel, that he, the Israel was the apple of, or is the apple of God's eye. So did Cyrus do that? Was the message delivered through Cyrus to the ends of the earth? Yeah, check it out. In, in Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 1 begins this way. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, this is also prophesied in Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, hear this, this is what he writes, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. <laughs> he's, saying, he's proclaiming to the ends of the earth that God has given 
him the, the, the ability to conquer, that it has been at the hand of God. And he goes on to say, And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is, um, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Think about that for a second. This kind of blew my mind for a minute. Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persians, conquers Babylon. He finds a captive people within Babylon who, who had been taken captive by, by the Babylonians and lets them go home. Why would you do that? Why not just leave the captives in Babylon? He's reigning and controlling all of the locations anyway. Why go to the effort of moving a people? Well, it's interesting to note, and some would say that even after Cyrus goes in and takes over Babylon, that perhaps Daniel, perhaps it was another prophet, we don't know for sure who it was, goes to Cyrus and shows him this prophecy in Isaiah. It says, God has been talking about you for 200 years. Let me show it to you. And shows him this prophecy given in Isaiah. And because of that, Cyrus, though doesn't necessarily follow the Lord, bends his will to the Lord and says, well, God said to let his people go. God gave me this victory, so I'm going to let his people go home. And that's when he issues the decree at the beginning of Ezra to say, the captives are going home. He didn't have to do that. He was, he was in control of what was happening in Babylon. It, wasn't, it was entirely up to him what he did with the, the Hebrew people. Well, no, it wasn't. God was in control. And God said, Cyrus, you're going to send my people home. Pretty neat story. Verse 7 says, I form the light. This is God speaking still. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Simply put, Isaiah knows Cyrus would know and declare to the whole world, and we should know today, that God is in control. God is in control. Um, since this prophecy was given long before God's people went into the captivity, Isaiah now announces deliverance from, they could be comforted through the captivity by knowing God is in control. He makes the statement there in verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. And while that speaks to the attributes and the creativity and the, the power of God in order to create just on a, a very basic level, it's also um, an attention-getter attention to Cyrus because of what Cyrus would have been raised in, the religion that he would have been raised in. Um, Cyrus would have been, the religion that Cyrus, Cyrus, Cyrus was raised in, easy for me to say, Cyrus was raised in, was one of dualistic gods, kind of a yin and yang kind of thing, where there's a good power and an evil power, and those powers are equally balanced. Um, Cyrus was a Persian. Uh, the Persians had a dualistic concept of God in the world. Their good god they called Ahur Mazda, and the evil god Angra Mania, something like that. But what's interesting is their good god created the light, the second god, the evil god, created the darkness in accordance with their religious beliefs. 
So then look at what, God, what he says in verse 7. God is speaking, no, I formed the light. I formed the darkness. So that would have perked Cyrus's ears when he read that because of what he was raised in. Verse 8, rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. This is God having dominion over his land, over all that he has created. He can command the heavens to rain down from above. He can pour forth uh, from the skies. He can let the earth open. Uh, and he has the power to do that. But it's interesting language, I think, that from the sky would come righteousness, and from the earth opening, salvation has come. That's, that's the language there in verse 8. Rain down your heavens from above, and let the, earth pour, or let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation. Think about it spiritually for just a second. It says, let the heavens rain down righteousness. Jesus comes from the throne on high, comes from heaven, bringing with him his righteousness, his perfection, his, 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 um, his righteousness. And then how has salvation come to you and I? It's an empty tomb. It's an open grave. It's the open earth, if you would. Um, and, and salvation comes to us through that, the earth opening and, and coming forth as salvation. Jesus left his throne in heaven, bringing to an undeserving people his righteousness, and salvation is accomplished when the earth or the grave opens and yields forth our Savior unto life. Kind of a neat picture there in verse 8. A warning in verse 9. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Anybody interested going toe-to-toe with God? How's that going to go for you? Not good. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? Right? Does the pot, does the clay, uh, how intelligent is clay? It's not, thank you. (laughs) Somebody got it right. In comparison, in contrast to the intelligence of clay to the potter, which is incredibly vast, how much more God's, or uh, the people of the earth to God, right? The, the contrast is vast, and the contrast between us and God is even greater than clay and the clay maker, potter. Ooh. Huh? Be specifically, Right. shall the clay say to him who forms it what are you making or shall the handiwork say he has no hands that's that's an asinine thought that's that's a foolish thought that the clay would actually say to the potter and then he goes on to say woe to him who says to his father what are you begetting or to his mother or to the woman what have you brought forth right the baby doesn't turn around right after it's born and say, what's going on? What are you doing? Doesn't, doesn't get to question its, mo- its mom and dad. It's a foolish thing for the created to question its creator. And that's why he says, whoa. 
It's a foolish thing for the created to question its creator. Why? Because the creator has the ability to destroy what it's created. The, the potter can break the pot. How much more us and God? Whenever I have to buy something, whenever I have to go to the doctor's office, whenever I have to renew my license, whenever I have to do something that involves me giving my name, I have to spell my name for people. I spell my name weird. Um, my name is Chris, but it's spelled K-H-R-I-S. And for the first 41 years of my life, I had never seen anybody spell it that way. There are people that spell it C-H-R-I-S, that's the most common. And there are people that spell it like Chris Christofferson, K-R-I-S. But that's not how I spell my name. It's K-H-R-I-S. How much say did I have in the way my name is spelled? None. I didn't get to pick it. I didn't, when I was born and my parents said, what are we going to name him? And my mom said, well, I don't know, let's do something a little bit different. And my dad said, well, I kind of like Christopher. And she said, well, that's fine, but we're going to spell it differently. I didn't get a chance to pipe up and say, hey, just uh, you're wrecking your kid's life here. You know, and forever he will have to say, yeah, I know it's not my fault. <laughs> because people inevitably start typing C-H-R-O, backspace, sorry, what is it? <laughs> and that's the way it goes every time I give my name. That's the point here is, is, is we, don't have, we didn't have a say. We don't get to say to the potter. We didn't get to, I didn't get to say to my parents, hey, change the way I spell my name. Oh, I could go and change it now, but I'm not going to bother doing it. There's actually a professional NBA player. with a, His name is Chris that spells it K-H-R-I-S now. Forget who he plays for. I like to think he got it from me personally, but uh, his parents did. Anyway, there's a professional hockey player whose last name is Chris, spelled K H R I S. Anyway, it's catching on. It'll be all the rage in about 300 years, roughly 200. 2166. Yeah, yeah, I, I like it. We'll start it now. <laughs> and that, so, so what did I do? I jacked up my, my daughter's first name. <laughs> my firstborn daughter, we jacked up her name. It's like, my parents going to do it to me? I'll do it to my kid, too. Her name's Corinne, but it, you don't have a shot of knowing how it's spelled unless, you, unless you've seen it. So, Any guesses? Huh? No guess. Two N's. That's pretty good. K-O-R-Y-N-N is how we spell Corinne. So typical spelling is with a C. C-O-R-I-N-N-E uh, is the typical spelling. But we went weird, too. So that's why we call her KK. It's hard to say Corinne. <laughs> All right, we'll move on. Huh? Uh, her middle name, Kathleen. KK, Corinne Kathleen. So... Yeah, it's good that we didn't have a last name that started with a K. <laughs> we would have had to completely change that. Right, that's what I'm saying. We're fine. It's KKR, so we're, we're all good, as long as she doesn't marry somebody with the last name of K. So, I'm just saying. 
we got a black kid at home. Uh, you know, I, I think that pretty much tells us tells everybody where we stand as far as all that goes. So, just saying. This is being recorded. Yeah, we might. Can we move on? All right. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, speaking of Cyrus. I will go direct all, I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and my exiles and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. So Cyrus doesn't even do it to receive a reward. He just, he just, he just does it. And we've read that in, at the beginning of Isaiah. Repeatedly throughout the, this section of Isaiah, God emphasizes his place as the creator. The importance put on this idea shows us that knowing God as creator isn't an option or just a matter of textbook fights in the courts and in public schools. When we reject God as creator, we reject the God of the Bible. He declares it emphatically in these chapters. We serve a God of our own imagination if we reject God as creator. We think he really didn't make us, so it really doesn't matter. And what's interesting to know is when it talks about God being the creator, especially in the Old Testament, it's not only speaking of how he began everything, but it's also referring to him as one who maintains everything. It's not just a, 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 a he, it's not like he spun the world and walked away from it. It's that he created all things, but in the idea of creating all things, he's also maintaining all things. That's the idea of behind the word of creator, especially in the Old Testament. He didn't just take his hands off. He who created is still in control today. His promises are still true today, and his blessing still lies on the nation of Israel today. We need to take hold of that. We would do well to remember that, especially in November, as we vote in a new president. I'm not going to tell you, and I, I won't between now and then tell you who to vote for. That's between you and the Lord and who you believe the Lord would want in there. But what I would encourage you to do is to vote for the person who would strengthen America's alliance with Israel. Why? Because God's word says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you to Abraham, the beginning of the nation of Israel. And I want, as long as I'm in this country, the people leading this country to bless Israel so that our country is blessed. So vote for the person who's going to have the greatest allegiance to the nation of Israel. That's my encouragement. It's up to you to figure out who you think that is. Verse 14. 
Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. There is no other God. So this is now God speaking to the nation of Israel talking about them coming out of captivity and he's saying all these nations are actually going to bow down to you. It's uh, it's a declaration that though they went to Babylon in chains, they're going to leave without that. And and one day the tide is going to turn and the nations will bow down to them. We we recognize that even in the millennial kingdom that, you know, the that Jerusalem is going to be the hub, uh, the, the center of the world. They're not really bowing down to the nation of Israel here, as it says, but they're bowing down to the God of Israel. I love verse 15, Isaiah is now overwhelmed at God's goodness, and he breaks into praise. Look at verse 15. Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. It's interesting he says there in verse 15, truly you are God who hide yourself. He, I want to be, want to make sure we understand that God can be found by those who are seeking him. He doesn't hide himself from those who genuinely want to know him and see him. Uh, it's very similar to the way Jesus is teaching in parables in our, in our study in Mark, right? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, that's the idea. Is if you're genuinely wanting to seek the Lord, he will absolutely make himself known to you. But for those who are not looking, he's not seen. And it talks about having a veil over their heart, that, that they're, they're, they're incapable uh, are incapable of of knowing or seeing the Lord. Uh, for thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. How many times have we heard that in this chapter? I've not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. And that is the emphasis of these chapters that we've gone over for the last three weeks. They have an overarching message of the foolishness of idolatry, of chasing after false gods, in comparison to the one who created and maintains all things. He didn't say to Jacob, seek me in vain. He didn't hide his words. He didn't go to a, a dark place. He is the creator of all things. Tell forth and bring forth your case. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from me from that time? I'm sorry, who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior 
There is none besides me. If you just had chapter 45 of the book of Isaiah, would you have any question about how the Lord feels about idolatry? Would you have any question about plurality or multi-theistic gods or, uh, or mythology or any of that? Uh, how God feels about any of that? How many times have we heard him say, there is no other God besides me? How does God feel about Mormonism? <laughs> there is no other God. Mormonism teaches that you can become a God. There is no other God besides me. Time and time and over and over throughout this chapter. Something that we need to hear as well. What's interesting at the end of verse 21 there is he says he is a just God and a Savior. Think about that for a second. How can that be? How can you be both just, which means to exact punishment where punishment is due, and be a savior at the same time, removing somebody from the punishment that is due their name. That's not just. He declares himself to be just and a savior. For, uh, in order to be just, punishment for sin must be exacted. But think about Romans chapter 3. right? We're, Roman, we're very familiar with Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just three verses later, listen to this. He says, to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The only way that you can be both just and a savior is to take on yourself the punishment that is due to somebody else. That way the, 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 the price is still exacted and that's exactly what Jesus did by bearing our sin on, on the cross. He, God is still just because he has poured out the wrath that you and I deserve. He didn't just erase sin. He, took the, he didn't just erase the punishment for sin. That's not just. He took the punishment for sin and poured it out on his son, Jesus, at the cross. So that makes him just but it also makes him the justifier because he, Jesus has absorbed that wrath and defeated sin and death, overcame the price, resurrected to life, and in that then he becomes the justifier, taking our punishment and exchange, giving us his righteousness, and we might have life. Make sense? So that's how you become both just and the Savior together. And then I love verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Once again, we hear that. But that's a fantastic verse on the simplicity of salvation. All we must do is look. Alan Redpath says, one can read Many books on theology which expound all kinds of things in an attempt to show how, much can, how man can reach God. But these theories are far from the truth. The, the Holy Spirit needs exactly four letters, two of them the same, to tell us what to do. L-O-O-K. Look. That is all. It is the simplest, basic thing any person can do. Yet... 
the most difficult to do in daily living. Look to me and be saved is what he says. It shows us the focus of salvation. We must look to God and never to ourselves or any uh, or to anything else of man. Look unto me is his word, which means looking away from the church because that will save nobody. Away from the preacher because he can disappoint and disillusion you. Away from all outward form and ceremony. You must look off from all of this to the throne and there in your heart see the risen king reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Alan Redpath. It shows love behind salvation. God pleads with man, look to me. It shows the assurance of salvation and be saved. It shows the extent of God's saving love, all you ends of the earth. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel were stricken by deadly snake bites And Moses lifted up the image of a bronze serpent raised on a pole. And the people who looked to it lived. The people weren't saved by doing anything, but by simply looking to the bronze serpent. They had to trust that something as seemingly foolish as looking at such a thing would be sufficient to save them. And surely some perished because they thought it too foolish to do such a thing. Close with a story. We'll finish up the chapter here real quickly. But Sunday, January 6th, 1850. A young man, not quite 16 years of age, was walking through a village um, in a little town some 50 miles from London, England. On a bitterly cold day, the snow fell heavily. But he was more concerned to find a church because he was deeply conscious of his need of God and of the breakdown, sin, and failure of his life even at that young age. As he made his way through the street with the snow falling, he felt it was too far to go to the church that he intended to visit, so he walked down a back lane and entered a little Methodist chapel. He sat down near the back, and it was as cold inside as it was out, There were only about 13 people there. Five minutes after the service was due to begin at 11 o'clock, the regular preacher for the morning hadn't come. He had been delayed by the weather. So one of the deacons came to the rescue and began conducting the service. And after a little while, announced his text, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The deacon didn't know much. So he only spoke for about 10 minutes. Charles Spurgeon himself tells what happened. I had been wandering about, seeking rest and finding none, till a plain, unlettered lay preacher among the primitive Methodists stood up in the pulpit and gave out this passage as his text, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text, And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. I remember how he said, It is Christ that speaks. I'm in the garden in agony, pouring out my soul unto death. I am on the tree, dying for sinners. Look unto me. Look unto me. That is all you have to do. A child can look. One who is almost an idiot can look. However weak, however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. 
Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting, this is Spurgeon now, under the gallery, and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. I expect I did for how I felt. Then he said, there is no hope for you, young man, or any chance of getting rid of your sin, but by looking to Jesus. And he shouted, as I think only a Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. And I did look. And when they sang a hallelujah before they went home, in their own earnest way, I'm sure I joined in it. It happened to be a day when the snow was lying deep and more was falling. So as I went home, those words of David kept ringing through my heart. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And it seemed as if all nature was in accord with that blessed deliverance from sin, which I found in a single moment by looking to Jesus Christ. Somehow, in a very strange and amazing way, that young man looked from the depths of his soul into the very heart of God. He went out from the church, and he tells us as he walked through the streets, his burden had been lifted, never to return again. He walked with a new spring in his step, a new joy in his face, a new sense of peace in his heart. He had looked and lived as simple as that. Salvation unto, uh, by our God is as simple as looking unto Him. To close the chapter, it says in verse 23, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And we certainly hear that in Philippians chapter 2, Paul quoting this in fact. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are increased, in, or sorry, incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. God is good. Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Lord, I'm grateful that you made it as simple as looking unto you and we shall be saved. For we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross. That we might have life, Lord, that we might have life eternal. Our unrighteousness exchanged for your perfection. Our sin exchanged for your uh, sinlessness. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we see that your message resounding throughout that you desire that all men might know you and be saved. That all would know that there are no other gods save you. And that all would come to worship you. Lord, we know that there is a day coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you our Lord. But if it's not done on this side of death's door, then it will be unto death that they confess. I pray, I pray that we would be an instrument in your hands, an instrument of salvation to this neighborhood, to this community, to this city, God, that we would declare your righteousness and, and your worth, Lord, and that we would proclaim the message of the gospel, that men still today can look unto you and be saved.
Fill our hearts, Lord. Fill our mouths with that message as we depart from this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.